Today on the Orthodox Ethos Podcast, Craig Julia joins us to discuss the Orthodox understanding of the papal dogma of the Immaculate Conception. This podcast was originally recorded in December of 2022. Thank you for joining us and God bless you. Welcome back to the Orthodox Ethos Podcast. We're really very grateful to God to have this opportunity tonight to have a uh, uh, well-known Orthodox apologist to join us to talk about an important topic that has really been on the scene of the Roman Catholic Orthodox discussion going back quite some time, but ever so often because of a variety of provocations, it comes back. And it's important for us as Orthodox Christians or other Christians understand clearly the Orthodox teaching and the Orthodox analysis and rejection of other uh, dogmatic teachings that are contrary to the patristic voice. So I'm gonna bring uh, our good friend and uh, uh, brother in Christ, Craig, up. How you doing, Patrick? Say Patrick. How you doing? Tonight? I'm good, Father. Everyone knows me as Craig, but <laughs> my name in church is Patrick. So call me yeah. Patrick. Very good. Very good. So we have the opportunity tonight to talk about this in part because uh, we've been promoting our book, uh, our new book, one of our many new books from Uncome Out and Press, uh, dedicated to Catholicism, Catholicism in light of Orthodoxy by Archimandrite George Abbott of Grigoridiu Monastery on Mount Athos. And I, you know, I, I forgive those um, in the English speaking world who are not familiar with uh, the great uh, and well-known Abbott in the Orthodox world, in the Greek Orthodox world especially. But the truth is that he is a towering figure of patristic Orthodoxy in the late 20th century. And we are so honored to be able to publish this little book, which has helped many, many people uh, already in the Greek language to understand what's at stake in the dialogue with Catholicism in the, in the last 30 years, but also to help educate and, and catechize the Orthodox people and all good-willed Orth, uh, Roman Catholics who are looking to understand the Orthodox position. I mean, Elder George um, is is not simply a abbot on Mount Athos or a monk from Mount Athos. He, is also, he was also a professor of theology before he left for the monastery. He had a brotherhood in Athens, taught uh, many topics, uh, and uh, has written many, many books, uh, and has been revered in the Orthodox world and on Mount Athos as the voice of Mount Athos. So when we had the blessing of the monastery to publish this, we thought it was just an, an, an amazing opportunity for us to take part in and promote his person and his words, which are uh, really authentic and authoritative for the Orthodox Church. So when we posted a couple of days ago, a short excerpt from one of the chapters. Now, this book has uh, it's a short book. It's not meant to be a, a, a full treatment of the topic. Obviously, it's just a meant to touch on the most perhaps the most important. It's got basically five chapters. And he looks, he looks at the question of the Vatican State. He looks at the question of the Filioque, of course, uh, created grace, the primacy or authority infallibility, and then the anthropocentrism of uh, Catholicism and of the West in general. And from that little introduction to that, that um, 
uh, that section of the book, which again is very short, we took a short quote, put it online, and we saw that um, another um, an, an apologist for Catholicism over at Reason and Theology uh, wanted to take the advantage to take the opportunity to criticize that and critique it. And so maybe we should just read that before we start our discussion, because that's kind of the beginning of where this this discussion uh, between us uh, offline began. And the, the elder is saying here at the end of his little book, between the two, the two churches, there exist other differences, such as their teachings concerning the purgatory fire and their teaching concerning our Panagia, the most holy Theotokos, which they name Mariology, declaring as dogma the Immaculate Conception of the All-Holy One. They do not understand that with this, they separate her from the human race. Uh, a fact which has soteriological consequences for humanity. For if the virgin possessed a different nature, we're going to unpack all this, obviously, then the Lord taking on human nature from her divinized some other nature and not the nature common to all men. So just a short, obviously there's much, much more the elder could have said, but he's just it, just referencing it really. Uh, so we'll, we'll unpack what we understand the elder is saying, what he's implying, which is not said, uh, and uh, we'll go through that. But uh, before we do that, let me just open it up the, to uh, uh, to Craig, and 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 me, you can give us some words on your end why you thought maybe tonight was a good opportunity to talk about this topic. Yes, it's it's good to be here, Father. It's it's an issue where I think both sides are speaking past each other, and if people understood. What those words mean in that context, it probably would have not elicited the comments that it did. But I think instead of jumping into, as it's too common in online apologetics and to unedifying response videos, that it would probably be helpful to give a good coverage of what the Orthodox doctrine is, why it's an apostolic doctrine. And then we're going to see that the context, it's not going to be very difficult to understand. So, like, that's what I was thinking. I was thinking of starting from the beginning. It won't take too right. long. Right. And then once all those pieces are together, um, the the Orthodox doctrine vis-a-vis um, the Roman Catholic doctrine and, and some of the comments were made will make more sense, I think. I think that's a great idea. That's a great idea. I'm going to let you begin the process. I'm going to jump in here and there uh, with some comments. I also want to introduce at some point uh, some of the wisdom that we have from our uh, father among the saints, the great wonder worker of uh, Shanghai and San Francisco, John, uh, St. John uh, Maximovich, the, the incorrupt one, who has a uh, short uh, chapter, which is very useful as well. But we'll leave that toward the end. And let's go back to the beginning. So let's let's hear more about the, the beginnings of this doctrine that we have, the understanding of the Most Holy Theotokos in the church history and church uh, theology. Yeah, it's, to me, to understand why we venerate the Theotokos, we have to really understand it's because the Church has preserved this not only because she is our chief intercessor uh, before God, but also because knowing the Theotokos helps us know Christ. There's soteriological and anthropological implications which are Absolutely essential. And so then it shouldn't surprise us that this is not something that popped up so long later in the Middle Ages, 
right? Like Christ was important since, you know, year 35 or whatever the church began, you know, whatever exact year that is in the first century. And so when we look at the earliest sources, I don't think, I think our side, let alone Protestants, but I think our side is not aware of how permeated Marian doctrine was in the early church. Now, in the first 200 years of church history, in 10% of all Christian author, authors, there's approximately 120 in those first 200 years who so we have extant sources of, approximately 10% have Marian prayers or explicit Orthodox Marian doctrines like either her assumption, her perpetual virginity, her sinlessness. But when have you ever heard that? 10%, right? It's, it's a way bigger number of people think, and it's surprising given the fact that in the early church, we don't really have many prayer books or, or hymns that are preserved because one, apologetics works were more important during these persecuted times, and two, liturgical sources don't tend to survive history because they're used. I mean, you know, Father, um, when people are holding candles while reading in the dark of the book and the wax is dropping on the book, they don't tend to last that long. Um, like if you use a prayer book every day, it lasts a few years before it becomes, you know, just shreds of paper pretty much. And so the fact... May I ask a question? Because I think sure. this also plays into the que the reason why we don't hear a lot about the Mosoli Theotokos uh, for a lot of church history. And that is because she's not a part of the Kirigma. We don't go and preach the Mosoli Theotokos. We preach Christ. And so the whole focus outwardly to the world is never going to be about the Theotokos. That's an inner life that's for the people who are initiated and not so much as a uh, evangelical uh you know uh, matter isn't that isn't that partly why we don't have a lot of focus on her in especially in the first 300 years when we're persecuted well absolutely uh and because there's no controversy that would have justified uh, apologetics works which there were i mean some of the great second century saints are literally called the apologist that's their nickname yes and so due to the veneration Theotokos being something that would be done during liturgy in prayer, these things are memorized. I, I would challenge people, well, how many Christian hymns do you know from the first 200? Uh, they exist, obviously, but how many do you know from the first 200 years of church history? And people are like, oh, I, I don't think there's barely any. It's because those sources, the, what's in the church, tend not to be preserved because mm -hmm. of their use. Uh, because they're not going to have patrons where they're dedicating them to Roman emperors and stuff. They would have been just used in the church. But even then, 10% of all the sources, all the, you know, of the authors we have, have these Marian doctrines. So if people go, well, I walk into an Orthodox church and marries every other sentence, that seems totally disproportionate to the early church. Well, not exactly for the reason you stated. They're going to be underrepresented in the sources for archaeological reasons to be underrepresented in sources. But even then, it rises up to 10%. So it's way more than people think. If if you'd humor me, I'd like to just uh, rattle off uh, the yeah. list so people know I'm not making it up. <laughs> sure. Go for and it. so I'm going to say quick, people could rewind uh, and there'll be published work with this. 
But for example, there's the extension of Isaiah 11, 12 to 14, the Ode to Solomon 19, Proto-Evangelicum of James, paragraphs 19 to 20, the fragment of St. Hegesippus, uh, St. Lido of Sardis, fragment 17, the Bodmer Papyrus, um, the Gospel of Bartholomew 4.17, the Vienna Manuscript, St. Hippolytus in the fragment, Clement, Clement Alexander, Stramata, Book 7, Chapter 16, Origin, Commentary on John, Book 1, Paragraph 6, um, Pseudo-John, it's a Dormition homily, Paragraph 47, people could read it, page 396 in Schumacher's 2002 book. Book of Mary's Repose, paragraph 135, again, page 39, 349, the same book. A archaeological find, the Grotto of Jerusalem, which has a Marian prayer. And I'll just add, as a, that was just 12 sources I just named in the first 200 years church history. Here's what didn't make that list, because it's 20 years too late. The Subtum Presidum, which no mainstream scholarly source dates before the year 250. But if the earliest actual like the sources from the year 250, perhaps. They're saying 2nd, 3rd, 4th, or 3rd century is the actual age of the papyrus. Well, how old's the prayer that the papyrus had written down? Could be older. So I just named now 13 sources, most likely within those first 200 years. And the first 12 on mainstream scholarship at the low end all puts them in those first 200 years. Mm -hmm. And so I just want to address, unless you want to interject, Father, that people say, well, this is from Gnosticism, and then the early church um, acquired uh, the doctrine from Gnostics, and I don't think this is tenable, Father. And the reason I don't think this is tenable is, for one, out of the sources I just read, only two are Gnostic, according to mainstream scholarship. All right, only two. And so that means the majority are from uh, mainline Christian sources, which makes it more likely that the Gnostics borrowed it from the mainline Christian sources, not the other way around. And I wasn't naming all anonymous sources. We just named Clement, um, Leto Sardis, um, Hippolytus, Origen, etc. So we're talking about some heavy hitters here. We also see an identical proportion if we look at uh, the earliest prayers to the saints recorded in church history. Now, this is another issue that Protestants don't understand, that a very similar number, 10% of all sources within the first 200 years of church history of Christian authors, because of course there's authors that write more than one source, contain prayers to the saints. And out of 11, all right, of these prayers to the saints, only one is from a Gnostic source, and that's even presuming it's actually a prayer to, uh, to uh, a and saint, it might not be if you understand Gnostic theology. I'm not going to bore the audience, but just to throw their side a bone, I will, I'll, I'll grant them that. And so what's important about these proportions? The importance about these proportions is that it shows that the Gnostics are borrowing veneration of the saints and Marian doctrines from the mainline ortho, proto-Orthodox, if we want to call it that, that's what the scholars say, but from the Orthodox Church, not the other way around. Otherwise, these numbers wouldn't be so disproportionate. Um, if people want to, I, I won't make the whole show, I, I can name the sources for the, with the, the early prayers, but for our purposes, the proportions are identical. And so we have to understand, to have that many sources and those, that high percentage when we have barely any prayers um, out, you know, preserved. We have barely any hymns preserved um, because so many sources in the first 200 years are apologetic centered. To have these proportions indicates to, I think, anyone dealing honestly the evidence that the veneration of the saints 
It is very early. We have these sources stretching into the first century, so it's almost certainly apostolic if we're speaking historically. Of course, we as Orthodox Christians know by faith that they're, they're apostolic. But I'm trying to argue to those who don't accept the teaching of the church that historically speaking, they're almost certainly apostolic. And if we see it from uh, that light, how else could we conclude that other than that the Theotokos was extremely important right from the beginning? All right. And, and that's what I want people to walk away understanding is that choose important right from the beginning. And just so people know, you could also find prayer saints in Jewish sources during that same time period, including First Enoch 9.3. Now, um, if you're ready, I could I could start unpacking precisely these Marian doctrines in the scriptures in the early church, um, unless you want to interject, Father. No, go ahead. And so. I think this is something important because this is where I think sides could, pa could speak past each other. But a presupposition the Orthodox has, have is a biblical one. Jude 1.3 speaks that the faith has been delivered once and for all. So there, there are no new doctrines. We don't get to lay back and philosophize how many angels could dance on a head of a needle. And, and then if we get the right inferential reasoning laid out, then that becomes the answer. We can only comment on what we have received, what is apostolic. We we don't devise new doctrines, even if they're eminently logical or something. It's just not how we do theology. And so the apostles have bequeathed to us the scriptures. There are earliest relevant sources to this question. And the scriptures teach that the saints have necessary power. We can see this in Revelation 6.10, Mark 12.25, Revelation 8.3, 2 Kings 5.26, Matthew 27.47. It's... If you just took for granted what the whole Christian world took for granted until the Protestant Reformation, which is the saints are venerated, we pray to the saints and they intercede for us, no one would see those scriptures and, and be confused that that's what they're talking about. They've only become confusing because the presumption has become that these are purely traditional doctrines and no bearing in the scripture whatsoever, which is just not true. These are apostolic doctrines and they are in their scriptures. I also think that a consistent and profound interpretation of scriptures demands Marian readings of some pretty obvious stuff. Now, I think a lot of the audience that follows you would be well aware of some of these, so just bear with us. It's going to really help us unpack it. We're going to learn some new things. And so, for example, the it's kind of a, a trope because so people, so many people know about it, is that the Ark of the Covenant is a type of the Theotokos because she'd be the prototype. She's the real thing. And really the best evidence for this is 2 Samuel 6, 9. And I'm just going to use that because that's what the most, most people have from their Bible on their shelf. Let's just say 2 Samuel 6, 9. And Luke 1, And it's intentional that when the Ark is talked about and when um, the Theotokos is talked about by the Archangel Gabriel, they're using the same exact words because that's the connection they're drawing. But it gets even more profound than that. So usually people hear. Here's what they don't usually hear. Which is, in Luke one thirty five, the archangel tells um, the Theotokos that the Holy Spirit will overshadow her. And that Greek word overshadow is the identical Greek word for the overshadowing of the Ark of the Covenant in Exodus 40.29 in the Septuagint. Identical Greek word. It's, it's different for tense, but the point is it's the same word. You know, St. Luke wasn't putting this by mistake. And so there's a connection with the purification of the Theotokos and the purification of the Ark, 
which we have to pay attention to because this comes out in all the hagiographies and all the patristics on this because, again, all the fathers have done is preserve the apostolic doctrine that was delivered once and for all. Right. If if the fathers all got something wrong and garbled the apostolic doctrine, then how would we get this back? Right. This doesn't make sense to the Orthodox. And so this is one thing we have to keep in the back of our mind talking about this issue. But being that the title of the show has to do with Immaculate Conception, we have to talk about original sin. Now, I think, thankfully, this is where uh, Roman Catholics Protestants and Orthodox, at least, could all say we have some sort of doctrine of original sin. Uh, people very often hear the term ancestral sin, just so people are aware. It's canonically the same thing. So, like, if you read the Latin canons of Carthage, it would say original sin. If you read the Greek translation of those canons, it would say ancestral, ancestral sin. If you read the Confession of Dositheus, um, in the Latin, because they made a Latin and Greek in the 17th century, it'll say original sin. If you read it in Greek, it'll say ancestral sin. So I'll just say original sin is what I'm used to, and so it makes more sense to others. But ancestral sin is the same thing. It doesn't mean will mean the same thing but from a lot of these things. But with the doctrine of original sin, we see this in the scriptures. It's the origin of death and the passions. And we see this in Romans 5 and Romans 7. Now, these things are not according to human nature, right? Like that we have original sin, because otherwise human nature would have been irreparably harmed. And it talks about this in Decree 6, the Confession of Decithius, which uh, is in the Council of Jerusalem, 1672. So they don't really, we, we say nature in the English language. You could read scholarly translations of the fathers and they'll even use the word nature. But I think for our purposes, and I, and I think, Father, it'd be good if you interject, they, they apply to the human tropos, and I'm going to let people that pronounce Greek better than me say that better than me. So the best I could you know, understand that term, it's the manner in which nature operates, you know, the way it operates. That is the tropos. Yes. Um, and so uh, I could get a little more into that, how the scriptures bear into that, but I think people haven't heard that before, Father. I don't know if you have anything to add about that. No, I think it's really important that we're not, and that's how the elder is is, is understanding it as well, in, in my understanding. So that, that we're unpacking here, not just uh, your uh, research, but actually the elder, when he talks about a different human nature, he's not talking about that, there, you know, there was a change to some other being, but that the way in which uh, that, that nature, the tropos, the way is, or, or manner, how we would translate tropos. You know, if I saw Toph and Ro, and, you know, I saw the letters laid out, it'd be easier for me to pronounce. I'm starting to get used to that because I'm doing some Greek with my son. But uh, again, I can read letters, not words so much. But th that being said, it's because it's the tropos that's affected, it's nature in usual Orthodox dialogue has to do with substance, essence. But like if we're talking to a Calvinist, they talk about sin nature all the time. No one would be confused. Sometimes nature does get used in that sense, at least in English translation. So people should be aware of that. Um, and so I think what is part of us speaking past each other in this issue is that the Orthodox doctrine of the atonement is much more well-rounded than the Western version. And so, like, the debate becomes, do you believe in substitutionary atonement or don't you? And that's all that people care about. But the atonement begins at the incarnation. 
his incarnation, his life, the resurrection, undo everything that's been wronged by Adam and that defective tropos that we've inherited from him. Okay, and so Christ, by being incarnated completely sinless with the intact tropos, his life being completely intact, never sinning, his death not having to die, we'll get into this, his voluntary death, while because of our tropos we have to die, he didn't have to die, he voluntarily dies, canceling the law of death, and then he resurrects, he conquers death. This totally undoes the tropos that Adam had given us. Right, And so that's why the Orthodox doctrine is so much more well-rounded and it all connects to this doctrine of original sin, which is why we really can't talk about the Theotokos and these hagiographic details without really understanding this is a complete package for us. It's not like you could put the Theotokos in the shelf here and then pick up something else, uh, Christology, and then talk about it. They're, they're a complete package. Now, in the scriptures, 1 Peter 1.18 speaks that mankind is ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your ancestors. All right? And the word feudal ways, uh, in a lot of, like, this is a New King James Version. Um, I'm not going to pronounce it so great, Father, in the Greek, but I think it's anastrophes. <laughs> you know? Anastrophes. Okay. Yeah. My translation says manner of life. You as a you speak yeah. Greek, so is that a, is that a, a good translation? Yeah. Yeah. And so Christ ransomed us from a manner of living, from a defective tropos, right? Mm -hmm. So like you read it in English, you don't really, you're not connecting these dots, but this is here in the actual scriptures, which are in Greek, and even like the feudal ways that English translation, it's, it's not terrible, right? It's a, it's a way of living. He didn't just, it's not like there were like Protestants say, these debts, these demerits, and, and Christ is, uh, in, you know, imputed righteousness and imputed sin to him. It's like, no, he corrected an actual defect in how our nature operated. It's more well-rounded than that. And that's in the scriptures. Um, so anyhow. Well, and it points a little bit to, to the question of synergy in salvation. Yes, I think, absolutely. Already, which is huge and not understood by many. So synergy is a Greek word for basically cooperation or working the same energy action operation that is together, right? That's united. So I think this points also to that, which is at the heart of our, our soteriology. It, absolutely. If anyone who studies the, the seventh century Christological controversies, for example, can't help but walk away and see that the pointed issue that St. Maximus teaches is that human nature, human nature now, the substance essence, before the fall, always reflexively did the will of God. Right? We were designed to synergize. It's the fallen tropos where then we don't do that. And we'll, we're going to get more into that. But that's why this is all connected, right? Because what Christ is restoring is actual human nature as it's supposed to be without, with an intact tropos, mm. right? Mm. It's like having the correct software on the PCM of your vehicle for all the car, and, car fans out there. And this, so this is going <laughs> to go back to the basic patristic teaching about the katikonike uh, omiusin, the likeness, the, the image and likeness eventually, right? So that's going to be really important. And understanding because if you have a total blackened and darkened and done away with image, not just a loss of a likeness, well, then a, a correction of, in, in the tropos is not going to be salvific. There's got to no, be something and, to work with. And, and that's why we will take major issue with some of the things that the that Western Christianity considers not sinful. And we're like, no, yes, this is part of the fall, because otherwise, if it's not, then that's 
that's internally encoded in human nature. And so we're, we're going to get that's yeah. that's so good. important. It's so good, good that good you brought that up, Father. Um, and so Christ, being that he is pristine human nature, he has pristine human nature. That's what he assumed um, in the Virgin. Um, that he was not subject to having a fallen trouble. He did not have to live a fallen life, pain, um, you know, hunger, and these things. He voluntarily assumed it as not being guilty of sin. And the scriptures and fathers are clear about this. Like, so for example, in John 19, 30, it says that bowing his head, he gave up his spirit, right? He bowed his head and then he gave up his spirit. He had to voluntarily die, um, Romans 8.3 speaks of Christ being made in the likeness of sinful flesh, not that he had sinful flesh. He was sinless. Um, and so he did this so that those who are guilty of sin, who involuntarily, us, right, inherited the manner of life from Adam, may have his inheritance undone and healed. And right, and this is how our atonement works. Well, how can it be undone unless we cooperate with the grace of God, unless we synergize with him? Right? It's all a complete package. You can't pick one thing off the shelf and then hold on to the and then keep the other thing on the shelf. It's orthodoxy is a complete package. They all connect. Now, the church's hagiographies for the Theotokos record her death, assumption, and they presume upon the anthropology we just discuss as being applicable to her. I mean, this this is the only scholarly thing that I'm actually publishing in, in Orthodox. I've written all sorts of blog posts and stuff. But like this is what actually I'm published in is particularly that topic is that you can't understand these hagiographies, divorce and the Christology. In fact, a lot of these people writing these hagiographies were in the midst of Christological controversy, like St. Maximus and even the Monophysites were doing. They're all doing the same stuff. Now, what are some details in these hagiographies we have to be mindful of because they're going to have anthropological and thereby Christological implications? Mm -hmm. Well, one of them is that they make reference to toll houses. And they also point out Christ was exempt from these toll houses and that Theotokos wasn't. Well, I mean, what's the significance of this? Christ having intact tropos, he would have nothing to accuse. It's not just committing sins, you know, it's a tragic thing, but children die, infants die, right? They, you know, they enjoy salvation if they're baptized in the church. And whether they are baptized or they're not, the point is, if they have original sin, there there is judgment. And so it's not like, oh, well, the Theotokos, she's sinless. Well, how could you be judged? Well, the same applies to infants. And the, and the confession of Docetheus talks about this. And so it's, it's a detail that's important. And it's a detail because accusations of sin doesn't mean she committed sin. But it's something that only someone that could be accused of committing sin could ha will have to deal with. Now, tradition also states that the Theotokos, by God's grace, was completely exempt from having to pass through those toll houses. So we don't actually say that she went through the toll houses. That's not that's not the hagiographic tradition. The point is, she was mindful of apart from grace that she'd have to. All right, that's what comes up in the hagiographies. Now, another detail that comes up in in countless saints in the hagiographies is they speak about the Theotokos grief and doubts. Um, grief being a blameworthy passion. People don't think of this, but the book of Revelation says there'll be no more tears in heaven. We should hope that grief is not part of an intact tropos, right? Mm. So so grief is something that's part of a fallen tropos. Mm. It does not pre-exist the fall. And doubts pertain to gnomic will. Um, 
and that also comes after the fall. It's there's a whole patristic analysis analysis of Genesis three six, but I'm just gonna get very bare bones here. No McWilling, in short, is a deliberative faculty. Should I do it? Should I not? Is it good? Is it bad? It's it's just not knowing reflexively what's good, what's wrong. And this doesn't mean you know everything. It means that by by nature, an attack tropos will always do God's will. They won't have to deliberate what God's what God's will is. The moment, apart from deception, it hears God's will, an attacked person, not fallen, will do God's will. This stuff that St. Maximus talks about, Roman Catholic scholars like Dr. Benjamin Heidgerken are, are well aware of this. So this is not just something that comes up in apologetics. This is mainstream stuff. Now, before the, before the fall, Adam and Eve were good, but they were inclined only to do God's will and not consider evil. Now, this is not my opinion. That St. Gregory Anissa on The Making of Man in chapter 20 said that man would not have been deceived by manifest evil. That's why Satan deceived Eve. Because if he said, do this because it's bad, it would have had zero appeal. He had to say, this is good. Because an intact tropos can only choose goods. Hmm. Right? There, there's, there's no sin and no no McWilling where, you, where you're going to be deciding, well, maybe I'll do good, maybe I'll do bad. That doesn't exist. Hmm. All right? So the fact that the Theotokos could doubt already poses these anthropological issues if we understand patristic anthropology. Now, th there's an even earlier source on this, and this is St. Irenaeus in Demonstration of the Apostolic Preaching, paragraph 14. Just so people are aware, St. Irenaeus wrote this because he wanted to write it down before the oral tradition of the apostles would be lost for good. <laughs> right? So this is the oral tradition of the apostles written down. And he, he records for us this, that Adam and Eve had no comprehension and understanding of things that are base. No comprehension. Right? They couldn't conceive of evil. It wasn't possible in that state. Mm -hmm. And so this idea of there being no nomic willing um, in, in human nature before the fall is not something St. Maximus made up. He was, he was being faithful and clarifying the earliest apostolic tradition um, that's recorded. Now, well, there's some more in this. What I want to unpack as well, like St. Gregory Nyssa on, on the making of man, in um, chapter 27, paragraph 5, speaks of uh, human nature being not subject to flux and change, right? No deliberation, we get confused. St. Irenaeus, in the aforementioned book, in paragraph 11, uh, paragraph 11, says that Adam and Eve were free and self-controlled. Um, St. Theophilus of Antioch, by the way, another mid-century, second-century saint, also makes comments on the gnomic will. So this is a very early doctrine. Sinful inclination and confusion, such as contemplating sin or even not knowing who God is. Like, how could you doubt who God is when, by nature, you're inclined to co-energize, synergize with God? Um, that did not pre-exist, the fall. But yet the, uh, the patristic tradition about the Theotokos does say this is something that occurred and something that God healed her from by grace. Okay, and we're going to get into why we don't think that's sin. Because I, I think, Father, Western people thinking of this as Protestants, or I think even some Roman Catholics, I don't know if this is traditional Catholic or not, um, but they hear this and sounds like you're saying Mary sinned, but that's not how we understand this, right? Sin requires consent of the will. Sin requires um, being tempted and accepting the temptation, not rejecting it. Conscious but, decision for sin. There's, yes, there's, there's conscious but, decisions. But this is a part of the, the common inheritance for uh, uh, the ancestral sin. That would be what the point, right? A absolutely. Because Christ would, could not be tempted by manifest evil, right? Because he, he was fallen. Uh, he, he, had, he had 
unfallen flesh, he prelapsarian flesh. Yes. Right. So he couldn't be tempted by that. He couldn't be tempted to doubt the father is the father. You know, he could. But the Theotokos could because they're because she has the same inheritance we do. But as we're going to learn, she's completely overcome that inheritance through God's grace and her perfect cooperation with that grace. She is our prototype of salvation in that sense. It's super important. Now, another early hagiography, the sixth book's Apocryphon, um, identifies the Theotokos as amongst the daughters of Eve, and also speaks of her having have purified herself from all evil thoughts, but also speaks of her, vo her voluntary death. So, uh, ironically, um, one scholar told me that, oh, you know, voluntary death is this, you know, late doctrine from the 6th, 7th century. I'm like, no, it's in the six books Apocryphon. And, and this book was translated, I think, in 1860 <laughs> into English. So this, some people really aren't paying attention. But the point is that we can see in these early hagiographies, they, they acknowledge she's a daughter of Eve. She, right, she didn't consent to evil thoughts. She purified herself, which, guys... I read these, the, the hagiographies and the saints consistently. It's not because she had evil thoughts. It's because she was rejecting any temptation to sin. All right. That's a way of purification, not because she was entertaining those thoughts. God forbid we do not believe that about the Theotokos. And her voluntary death is important because it shows that she attained to a spiritual death, uh, state where death became voluntary. This is very interesting. Now, in that one um, early source that kind of gives us the full gamut of Marian doctrine. She had original sin. Grace allowed her to overcome the effects of a fallen tropos, including the passions and death. Now, later hagiographies like from St. Maximus get very specific on these issues. And I think I'll just I'll dwell on Maximus because he we all respect Maximus. And he's um it's just he's more clarified because he's writing this in the midst of the monothelite controversy. And just for all those people that say, oh, well, there's scholarship that doubt that St. Maximus wrote this. One, the scholarship that doubts it credits it to St. Euthymius, um, the, the Enlightener of the Georgians. So then just some other saint wrote this. So that's really not problematic for our purposes. And two, the latest scholarship and manuscript evidence all points to St. Maximus. And that's, I've had the... Uh, Honor to read a pre it's before it's published an article that will be published next year uh, by Dr. Stephen Schumacher on that issue on the manuscripts of the life of the Virgin by St. Maximus. But according to St. Maximus in that book, in page 80 in Schumacher's translation, the Theotokos had grief and doubt that needed healing and consolation from God. Right? So she needed grace in order to overcome grief and doubt. Because again, Orthodox anthropology demands that these are things that precede the fall. Uh, by the way, the, in the preface to questions of Thalassius um, flat out states these are blameworthy passions for those that wonder. Now, page 153 in the Schumacher translation, uh, St. Maximus says, She was buried as one of the dead according to the order law of nature. Now, this is interesting because the reason St. Maximus brings this up is not because he doubts her voluntary death, but he's trying to create a contrast between her and the Lord, right? And how does he draw this context? Uh, this contrast, well, he states that the Theotokos, um, I'm trying to, I have my quotes, I think, in the wrong order here. Uh, so if I read later in a second, I'm sorry. But essentially, he says that the Theotokos, by grace, had the laws of nature um, changed for her, 
right? So she would have died apart from that grace because, again, that fallen tropos. Now, what are the contrasts to St. Maximus draw? Now, we can read this page 101 of his translation. She suffered more than him, that's Christ, and endured sorrows of the heart. For he was God and Lord of all things, and he willingly endured suffering in the flesh. But she possessed the frailty of a human being and a woman, and was filled with such love toward her beloved and desirable son. So to repeat, he willingly endured in the flesh, but she possessed the frailty of a human being. So Christ voluntarily assumed this sinless affects the fall. But the Theotokos, like us, involuntarily inherited these things, right? That's the point of the contrast. This is what St. Maximus is teaching. So likewise, Christ could not be tempted by um, sinful suggestions. He teaches that he was only tempted by natural goods, not manifest evil. But compared to Theotokos, to quote the Damascene, that she turned her mind away from every secular and carnal desire. We could read about that in Exposition, Book 4, paragraph, uh, Chapter 14. And we see St. John Chrysostom speaking of Christ's grace preempting her from uh, vainglory, for example. doesn't mean that she considered vainglory. By God's grace, she turned from it. But Christ could never have to turn from vainglory because it wasn't possible in his, pre in his prelapsarian human condition. All right? And, th and that's something that is taken for granted in the 7th century, but is lost now. I think a lot of people hearing this, like, I never heard this before because it doesn't come up in discourse very often. But, and so, uh, yes, Greg, Father. Already, already, all of this makes the ideas presented um, in defense of the Immaculate Conception impossible. Of it, course. It, yeah, it's, it's impossible to reconcile what we're hearing with the doctrine and the theology that's developed in the West. And I would say this is extremely enlightening in terms of our ascetic struggle, our hope. Her, She's the great example here. Yes, right? she's the first of many, right after the Lord, and so uh, when you're hearing this, you're hearing about uh, not only you're hearing about soteriology, and you're hearing about our life in Christ. What could be? I mean, she's she. I think Saint Maximus also says that we're all called to be Theotoki somewhere, right? In other words, by grace, spiritually to give birth to Christ. So he he sees her as the as our example, our, our leader, the champion leader. So all of that would be impossible if she was the great exception, which is what the Immaculate Conception makes her. And, and we'll get to say John Maximovich. He actually laments that you you, you take away her greatest merit. Yes. Uh, I mean, yeah. I I appreciate the Doctor Immaculate Conception because I love the Theotokos. Anything that exalts her, let's exalt her. We can't exalt her with words. How holy she is. But the problem of Immaculate Conception is you took one of the things away, which we could exalt her for. <laughs> exactly. So it, it's intolerable to us. If you understand proper Christology, proper anthropology, proper soteriology, it's a complete package. Yes, you know, I, I interrupted um, you, but continue, because this is very, very, very uh, uh, upbuilding. And, 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 and just, you know, Father St. Gregory Palmas and, and St. Nicholas Cabasillas are right there with you. They, they drew those explicit connections that you were drawing. Great. And so... I just like for the people that are impious, to be clear, none of these things mean that the Theotokos entertained any such sin, but that Satan tempted her with blameworthy passions, which she rejected. All right. That, that's all the orthodox position is. She never conceived of anything sinful, is uh, St. Saint, uh, um, Saint, um, Nikolai Zika says. Right. So she's not conceiving of things that are sinful. Um, she's 
tempted by things and by grace, she's able to overcome this because we need grace. In this is this super condition. important as well in the spiritual life, because how many people have awful thoughts, identify with those thoughts as if they're generated from themselves, as opposed to understanding them as from outside. So that distinction is often lost in the spiritual life. And then they own those thoughts as if yeah. they're their own and they drive them to despair and all the rest. So again, a huge, hugely important uh, uh, spiritual, let's say, doctrine here about the spiritual life for us. Oh, yeah. See, I mean, St. Maximus all over the place in that. I'm going to blow people's minds, but there's not a single bad thing you ever thought of that was really your idea. It's always the demons. <laughs> and, and that's the <laughs> teaching of the saints. Yeah. Not a single bad thing. And it's not the devil made you do it. You you could synergize with God or you could synergize with the devil. Make your choice. You so, just so people know, Christ was never tempted with blameworthy passions. In fact, uh, St. John the Dama Damascus is very explicit about this in Exposition Orthodox Faith, Book 3, Chapter 20. Now, the point is not whether she entertained these things and when we deal with this issue, the Immaculate Conception, but that she could have due to her tropos, right? And that's an impossibility for Christ. Right, so like when we're saying this, it's we're, what we're trying to state is that she had the capacity for it. Eve didn't before the fall, Christ in it, but she had that capacity because she shared the same condition we do. Right, that's that's the orthodox doctrine. Now this is not bad because it actually undoes Eve. Let me point this out for you guys. Hmm. Eve was born in a state without passions and without nomic will, and she voluntarily opted into them. Now, the second Eve was born in a state with passions in Omic will and voluntarily opted out of them to the mm. point that she overcame death. She overcame them entirely. This is the so glory. it's the exact foil, the exact, uh, the exact economy. It's exactly different. This is the great glory. Of that, that, that's why she's crowned. If she doesn't have this, she's not crowned. So important. It, 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 absolutely. It's like you're taking away literally her chief role in salvation history with the Immaculate Conception. The devil has been doing this for 7,000 years. He's, he's very wily. He's not stupid. Yeah. And the Immaculate Conception, in, in some sense, is one of the most uh, clever covers for something, if you understand Orthodox doctrine, is that it's extremely impious. Mm. Now, um, what I don't want people to understand also, because I know you have some Protestants and acquirers that, that follow this channel, is that the reason she overcame death is not because she wasn't human. She became so divinized that she was able to voluntarily die and be assumed by grace. She was not resurrected. That's why it's the assumption of Mary. Because Christ is resurrected because his human nature couldn't die. He voluntarily died. And by his own capacity, he rose himself. As he even says, right? Um, I give Knock down this temple and three days I'll rise it up, right? So mm -hmm. it's something he's doing. So... Schumacher, like that quote I was ham-handling before, page 136 translation, says, well, then how did Mary um, die? Um, how did she actually voluntarily die? St. Maximus says, the king and lord of nature's altered the course of nature, right? Because she couldn't do so according to be having a prelapsary nature. It was by grace, right? He altered the course of nature, the course of tropos, not our human nature, guys. Let's, St. Maximus wasn't a, a, a heretic, didn't know, you know, didn't know that there's between substance and essence and all these things, right? So there's that word nature popping itself up again, the same way that it came up in Elder Gregory's um, Elder quote. Elder <laughs> so, so we see it again. Um, now, this contrast, sir, it says about Christ, according to St. Maximus, 
Christ avoided drinking wine mixed with myrrh so that they would not be able to attribute his sudden and quick death to the poison instead of his own will and consent. So you see that dichotomy that's drawn? The Theotokos voluntarily dies because Christ altered nature. Christ purposely avoided anything that can make it look like he was poisoned or something. So it would be clear that his own will and consent is what causes death. Right? Mm -hmm. This is absolutely central and just never gets talked about, but this is so essential to orthodox yeah, doctrine. Uh, restate that and double down on that, because let's make sure everybody gets that. That's really the, the quote from St. Maximus? Yes, and this idea here that you're... That, that, you're, that, that again, that... Between Christ and the, most, and the Theotokos. Now, the Theotokos, right, she died voluntarily, but because of grace, God altered the course of nature. It's a quote from Maximus. Now, Christ, for example... He died voluntarily. He avoided drinking the wine mixed with myrrh, to quote St. Maxis. So they would not be able to attribute a sudden and quick death to the poison instead of his own will and consent, right? So the point is Christ could voluntarily die, but it's by grace because otherwise you've had to die. Christ has to voluntarily die by his own will and consent because it was actually impossible for him to die because he was sinless. He voluntarily opted into the blameless passions and corruption and death. Now, just so people, that's not apthartodocetism. Apthartodocetism rejected that Christ had blameless passions. Christ most definitely voluntarily opted to blameless passions. And he actually did corrupt hey, because that's a result of blameless passions. You have to unpack for people what the blameless passions are because I don't think that... All right, so blameless passions are... See, like the West just has concupiscence, and right? So they think like when you talk about concupiscence or have you really pronounce it, I, I have awful pronunciation of these things, that like sexual thoughts and, you know, and angry thoughts and, and they just think like, well, of course, like Christ didn't voluntarily assume that. But when we say passions, we are not just saying that, that like sexual thoughts and these things, those would be blameworthy passions. Mm. The blameless passions are like hunger, tiredness, like pain in your neck, right? They're the result of the fall. They're passions, right? Like the even have these things until she partook of the fruit. Um, but they're like they don't make you a bad person. Like you don't go to hell because your neck hurts. <laughs> if that if that helps put it really simple. Yeah. I don't know if you, you want to add anything to that, Father, maybe a little more profound. Well, it shows that he his humanity without sin without sin. It's 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 very important. It, to exactly. So like blameless passions are not the effects of sin, right? Blameless passions are in effect the like an actual. It's it's not just an effect. It's like a cause and effect, if that makes sense. Like it's a combined thing. While blameless passions, he only opted into um, the effects of sin that have nothing to do with actually conducting sin because Christ was the quote Hebrews 4 15 he was tempted in every way which we are but without sin right everyone leaves off but without sin right Christ wasn't tempted by sexual thoughts you know and impious things like the, like thoughts like that you know he was tempted in every which we are but without sin because he was sinless and he couldn't be tempted. It was constitutionally impossible. Because remember what we read in, in St. Irenaeus and St. Gregory Anissa, manifest evil does not tempt prelapsarian human nature, uh, human nature for the fall. And that's what Christ had. He can only be tempted in every which we are but without sin. So very important thing for people to understand. 
And as again, like I point out, right, Orthodox doctrine is apostolic. That's why it's in the scriptures. It's not something that just pops up in the Middle Ages. It's in the earliest of fathers. It's in the earliest recorded um, apost recorded apostolic tradition. St. Irenaeus wrote the oral tradition down. This stuff is from the beginning. Great. Let's go. Let's keep going. Now, um, and so because St. Maximus wrote all these things and we were getting so much into Christology during the Monothelite controversy, um, this doctrine's import, right? Marian doctrine's chief importance, why they're writing it down, is its effect in Christological doctrine. Mm. All right. Um, she is his mother, after all. She's the mother of God. So you, you would think these things are necessarily connected. Now... But it's not, the, it's not an accident that almost every icon we have in the Orthodox Church has her holding Christ and pointing always to Christ. And then yeah. and and every other icon has a halo, which is the grace of God. So God's always with her. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's always about God. It's always about God. Yeah. Now, um, I want to avoid typical response video genre where you're always making reference to um, here would be Michael Lofton because it, it because of the negativity and the sort of like it turns this into football or MMA, which it shouldn't be. This is not competitive sports. And so I'm going to focus on some of the concerns he brings up and the objections he brings up. And some of these are his own personal objections. And so you can't say every Roman Catholic believes this or he can't change his mind or, or whatever. We're just going to go with what was stated because I think a lot of people were concerned and we're going to just stick with the arguments and the points and the concerns and take it from there. Um, but that's that's where they come come from. And as you brought up earlier, Father, um, the the point of concern was that quote from Father George, and I, I can't pronounce Gregorio. Uh, how do you Gr say that? Father? Gregorio. 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 Uh -huh. Again, it's if monastery. It's, it's a monastery in the abbot of. Pronouncing this stuff in English is like impossible because our letters don't have the same phonetics. Right. I see like in the Greek, it makes more sense, but I don't have that in front of me. So anyway, that quote states, if the virgin possessed a different nature, I'm going to add in brackets as Roman Catholics allege, then the Lord taking on human nature from her divinized um, some other nature and not the nature common to all men. And so the concern is that this accuses Roman Catholics of believing if Mary had a different human usia. But as we were unpacking, nature could be another. It's just a reference to tropos in, in this context. So the elders' critique is that Roman Catholics teach Mary did not share the same fallen tropos we have. Well, why is this important? Because that's a mandatory, a mandatory confession for every Orthodox bishop. And by the way, also the Uniates, because they use the same service book. I'm going to pronounce it wrong because the English, English is terrible. The great Eucolygians, how it's spelt in English, Oh, Father, what's Eucolygian in, in Greek? Because we're laughing <laughs> F about that. Ephkologion. Ephkologion. Yeah, it's not even close. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. it's, again, so the Uniates have this too. So every Uniate bishop says this because, you know, the Uniates were once Orthodox. So what, what must they confess to be a bishop? I confess the word of God, co-eternal with the Father, being above time, uncircumscribed, unconfined, yet came down to our nature and humbled himself as man and took our whole fallen human nature from the pure and virginal blood of the only immaculate and pure virgin. All right. Our whole fallen human nature. Right. So we would hope that we're not accusing 
the Orthodox bishops or the Uniate bishops that they're confessing that there's a defective human nature and there's like a good human nature. They're talking about tropos, right? That's the context of this. And so if the Theotokos possess an unfallen nature, then Christ did not assume our whole fallen human nature as the, um, as the confession demands. And so all that um, Elder, uh, Elder Gregory is saying George. is... Elder George. Elder George, sorry, I've seen Gregory and this so much. Elder George is saying is what is like par for the course for every cleric that's a bishop for like since the 8th century. At least that's our oldest copy of this prayer. It's probably from before then. So like this is just like common sense stuff if you understand the Orthodox tradition. Well, it isn't the basic Christology that if he has not assumed it, he has not saved it. I mean, that was the whole point of the in the Christological controversies was basic uh, response to the to the uh, to those who are who are doubting his he assumed a human nature. Well, it's so. an absolute just like from First Peter one eighteen, Christ had to undo our whole manner of living, right? And so the Theotokos had fallen flesh, right? But it instantly, as it was assumed, because Christ assumed human nature, human flesh, into the divine hypostasis, the Word of God, right? He assumes human nature. The instant it was assumed. It's instantly transformed into blameless human flesh, blame, uh, flesh without a fallen tropos. So instantly, the moment Christ entered the world, the human condition was healed. Mm. Instantly, right? So that's why this incarnational reality is so important. And once yeah. you come up, and if you have an immaculate conception, you actually destroy the atonement. It, it's it's so important because that's how the atonement works. It starts with the incarnation, and if you don't have the incarnation correcting the fallen human tropos, then how how is our tropos ever corrected? If there wasn't a man that completely voluntarily assumed all the effects of the fallen tropos that were blameless and without sin, but otherwise didn't have the fallen tropos, it's a restoration of the original Adam, and that's what Christ is. Mm. So it's so important. Yes. Now, another issue that came up is he there's a definition of the Immaculate Conception that is given, but it's not in the actual Immaculate Conception. So it's but I'll just quote what was said. The quote is there was never a time Mary was estranged from God. So that's that's not in the 1854 definition. And this is really an emotional argument. It's sort of like, are you saying there's a time that Mary didn't know God, that the Theotokos could have went to hell if she died young? Or, or some sort of impious speculation, which like, who dreams up of these things? Um, and all I can say is she was predestined, right? She was foreknown and directed by grace to salvation from the foundation of the world. The Theotokos would be the mother of God. We need right? to unpack predestined, though, not in a Calvinistic way. Well, because God foreknew precisely yes. the holiness of the ancestors of St. Joachim and Anna, their disp dispassionate conception of the Theotokos, that... This dispassionately conceived uh, woman would always cooperate with the grace of God, that she would never con uh, consent to sin, right? That's why God chose her, because he foreknew everything. It's yeah, not that she didn't do everything. Yeah, Christ didn't make her do it. She synergized yes, with God. Yes, yes. Foreknew is a better term than predestination because of the implications of Christology and anthropology and all this. But it's, yes, I, 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 it's a perfectly I, good I, term. I'm, I'm sorry, Father. It's just... 
I want to take our Romans eight back from the Calvinist, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's our word, right? And I, I want to take Ephesians chapter yeah. one back from the Calvinist. Yeah. But yeah, when we're speaking of foreknowledge yes. and God foreknows who will uh, respond positively yes. to his grace and he gives the proportion of grace, like the scriptures say, each are given a measure of faith. He gives the proportion of grace, which he knows we will adequately respond to because God desires the salvation of all men. Just like those whom he hardens is because if he would give grace, they would have had greater fall. They would be guilty of rejecting even more grace. So yes. that's a whole thing, predestination. Yes, yes, but that's yes, what yes. I'm talking about. Okay, good. And so anyway, <laughs> um, so understanding, and that's why I wanted to use the word predestination in the orthodox sense, that if we understand that there is no way to speculate what would happen if she died in some absurd way without removing that central premise of her soteriological condition. Mm -hmm. So how could I say... How was there ever a time she was estranged from God where for that to be possible would be to remove the central premise of his sociological condition that God foreknew from the beginning of the world, this is who she would be. Yeah. That's why he chose her, right? So the, the objection doesn't make sense seen in that light. Now, we also have to be mindful of the saints. The saints don't locate her conception as the exact moment that resolved all enmity with the devil. Now, the quote, St. Augustine, and this is in Against Julianus, Book 4, Paragraph 122. It's only in the Latin, by the way. The English translation doesn't have this matching paragraph number. It states, We do not deliver Mary to the devil by condition of her birth, but for this reason, because this very condition resolved by the grace of rebirth. Right? So her spiritual baptism. Now, we also see, and just so people aware, well, I'll get into this. This has to do with the Annunciation. Now, St. Gregory the Illuminator, Homily Theory and the Annunciation. He quotes a uh, apocryphal conversation between the uh, angel Gabriel and the Theotokos. No longer shall the devil be against you. For where of old that adversary inflicted the wound, i.e. in the womb, there now, first of all, does the physician apply the salve of deliverance. Now, let me repeat that. No longer shall the devil be against you, but in the womb, now, there, the physician applies a salve of deliverance. Right? So the Annunciation, the grace of the Annunciation was a sort of healing for her. We're going to unpack what that means. Does mean she had sinned before then. Where death came forth, there was life now prepared its entrance. Right? So death came from us being born of uh, Psalm 50, speaks that uh, we, we have sin uh, from our mother. Well, from that, from our from the womb, from the Theotokos, from that mother, now life comes forth. So, right, it's this undoing of original sin. Now, and again, this undoing doesn't work if you don't have this sort of dichotomy purposely drawn, which is so much of Orthodox theology or these, like, these mirror images against each other. Now, again, to make clear, the Theotokos never in thought or deed sinned. She never conceived of sin in her mind. And by God's grace, she rejected every temptation to sin. God's grace was with her from conception, by the way. All right. So she, she's had increasing grace from conception and being presented the temple and so on and so forth. But none of this means that the Theotokos was born with an intact prelapsarian tropos. This would defy the incarnational aspect of the atonement confessed in the great Eucolygian. I'll use the English <laughs> pronunciation. Now, salvation is on a spectrum and grace is applied diversely. People need to understand this. Right? There's many mansions in heaven. There's many different, we attain to different levels of grace. So people could attain to heaven without theosis in this life. There's saints that like 
didn't see the uncreated light, but they are in heaven. Or undoing all the effects of sin. So the example would be that in the hagiographies, there's saints with voluntary deaths and saints with involuntary deaths. Now, a lot of Western Christians aren't even aware they're saints uh, that voluntarily died, but there's actually a whole ton of them that voluntarily died. Um, so we see there are people that go to heaven without attaining to the state of utter spiritual perfection, like those who voluntarily die. So, right, like you don't need utter spiritual perfection to go to heaven, and it sure helps, but I don't think anyone listening to this or you and I, Father, are going to attain to utter spiritual perfection in this life. And so for the Theotokos, the moment of utter spiritual perfection was obviously the Annunciation. Why? Because God became flesh in her. That's the full dose of theosis. doesn't get any more God than that. Right? Like, it's she actually had God incarnate in her. Right? So we'll be divinized by God's grace, by his, by his energies. But we're not going to have, like, God made of our flesh. We can even consume his flesh and blood, as we do in the Eucharist. But, like, God is not going to be made of us. She had the full dose of theosis. Mm. So that's why the saints focus on the Annunciation. That's what completely undoes the enemy of the devil. And so the objection removes so much force from what the orthodox doctrine is, which is why we would find the objection objectionable. Um, I hope laying it out like that kind of makes sense of it all for the audience. Well, and if I might interject something. Yes, Father. The, you know, uh, salvation, grace, I think people talk about grace, but there's probably a lot of different ideas here tonight. People listening, what is grace? What is grace? But grace is God himself and unity and communion in him. And so another way to say this, there's a spectrum of that, obviously. And there, the, there, it doesn't get any, as you said, any more intense or any more uh, full, full of grace. The Lord is with thee. I mean, that's, that's where we're now arrived at a state that certainly can, it surpasses Eve by a long, a long shot, right? So, so in, 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 in understanding our salvation and, you know, uh, the mother of God here, that I think is really important to unpack the meaning of grace because it, it I think a lot of people think of it in, in legalistic, moralistic terms. Uh, so hopefully. And helps. just so people are aware, Ephesians chapter three and Wisdom of Solomon chapter 11 does speak of grace in exactly those terms. This is, this is not some sort of um, medieval orthodox idea again we just the faith has been delivered once and for all we're just preserving and clarifying that deposit of faith very good now there's another accusation of orthodox uh misrepresenting uh roman catholics who believe that the theotokos never died and this was something that actually made me raise an eyebrow because he made a good argument and i want to maybe show there's a little more to this issue now, what we have to, both sides must concede, that there's many mainstream scholars um, that are Roman Catholics in good standing that are, lack of a better term, Marian immortalists. Now, this includes Father Martin Yugi, who actually directed input on the definition of the Assumption of Mary in 1950. Now, the quote Schumacher in the Ancient Traditions of the Virgin Mary's Dormition and Assumption, page 17, he says, because of Martin Yugi specifically, because of his input, the 1950 definition deliberately left open the question of the virgin's actual death, right? And so for us Orthodox where she had to die, that's a, that's a necessary part of our tradition. It's not necessary, unlike what uh, the objection to us states, it's not necessary 
for the Roman Catholics. I mean, this is even something that comes up by one of the people instrumental in the definition of that dogma, in Father Martin Yugi, which, by the way, um, they're very fond of quoting and following his scholarship because his scholarship is really all the stuff that you see in Father Christian Cops. People want to know. Now, just some people go, well, because, by the way, Father Martin Yugi is only in French and Latin. Well, oh, you know, maybe Schumacher's wrong, even though, you know, Schumacher is the eminent Marian scholar alive right now, and he will be for some time. He's pretty young. To quote um, a 1951 scholar, so you don't get like too much closer to the definition of the assumption. Um, Kaspar Friedhoff, all right, so I'm going to quote a Roman Catholic scholar. Says, if Mary did die, then this privilege includes an anticipated glorious resurrection. I say, if she did die. Historically, there's no evidence of that death. There have been and are, because obviously in 1951, Father Martin Yuki and Anton Wegner were still alive, um, theologians of the opinion that she never died. So I will, I'd say I share Lofton's conviction when he read paragraph 20 of the 1950 definition of the assumption that uh, he, that yes, you know, it's good to believe that the Theotokos died. Like, amen. I mean, that's, that's what the Orthodox believe. But I think it's important to recognize that contemporaries understood that document that of, of leaving that question open, that paragraph 20 was giving just one allowable opinion, not the only opinion. Otherwise, you would not have Father Martin Yugi, you wouldn't have Friedhoff, you wouldn't have guys alive at the time, instrumental in the definition of that dogma, saying otherwise, right? So that doesn't come up because I just don't think people have read enough of the scholarship and know enough about this. Um, but at least now it has come up and they can be aware. Now, there's another objection that says that the Immaculate uh, Conception, he says, permits the Theotokos to have some consequences of Adam's fall, such as sorrow. And uh, I think it was Catholic Encyclopedia that was quoted on this. And for the Orthodox, we cannot accept this. We can't accept that someone without sin um, completely without sin and no original sin would have sorrow. Now, sorrow, grieving for oneself is a blame is a blameworthy passion. It's not a blameless passion. Um, now, the fathers deny that Christ had sorrow. Now, I'm going to deal with some pretty low level objections. Like people say, well, isn't Christ a man of sorrows? Well, look at the Hebrew. That's not actually what Isaiah 53 3 says. Look at the Septuagint translating it and giving us the meaning of the Hebrew there as well. Um, Christ assumed our pains, is actually what it's saying, not really sorrows. Like he didn't assume our depression. Uh, people also point to the famous Jesus wept. But if you read the fathers on Jesus wept, they speak of Christ weeping out of empathy. Right, not because he was actually distraught, right? Because grief and sorrow is not part of his condition. That's why Saint Maximus was contrasting the Theotokos' weakness and her grief, and why she needed healing and consolation with Christ, just voluntarily assuming pain and death. Right? He didn't assume sorrow. It's a it's a blameworthy passion. Now, I don't want people. I, I this may be good for you to interject, Father, because this is pastoral. But the, the point of this is not for you to be despondent if you ever get sad. Right. In fact, if you re repent and you pray to your guardian angel, angel for positive thoughts, it's one of the prayers of the guardian angel. If you focus on all the blessings God have, if you repent from despondency, 
you actually do righteousness, right? Mm. Repenting from sin is righteous. You'll get rewards for heaven repenting from sin. So the point is, if you get depressed, you have sorrow, you have grief. Um, I'm not saying that makes you a bad person. I'm just saying we have to anthropologically understand where this fits because it's relevant to the question at hand. I don't know if there's something you want to add there, Father. Well, absolutely. I mean, this is our condition is not uh, the the Lord or the Mother of God. So we're on we're on the path of repentance, and so weeping for our sins is uh, is cathartic and essential. Uh, may, may may we not have a hard heart, but actually uh, have sorrow for our sins and for the sins of the world. Not not doubt in in the Lord's love. That's uh, not that would be the opposite. Yeah. Good to doubt ourselves sometimes, but not God. (laughs) That's for sure. There's another objection, which I found disconcerting, that the Orthodox reject their own saints, uh, who allegedly believed in the Immaculate Conception, out of spite. And there's no evidence of this. I don't know if someone says, out of spite, because I refuse to believe in the papacy, I reject the Immaculate Conception. I, I don't think there's anyone who says that. And the evidence that was brought forth was an article from Father Lev Gillette, which I'm sure I'm pronouncing wrong because it's French. And I want people to understand, because I've actually read the article, that it does not quote a single Orthodox saint um, teaching the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. Not one. Doesn't quote it. And so to use this article, which doesn't quote an Orthodox saint to teach the, the, docu- uh, the doctrine, um, is questionable if the whole thing is like, well, there's Orthodox saints that taught the doctrine. It's just not in that article. Um, now, there are several Orthodox saints that have discussed the issue of Immaculate Conception, and they've all rejected it. Canonized saints, like St. Saint John Maximus, St. Paisos, they reject the Immaculate Conception. This is not, uh, the, for example, there's going to be more coming. Uh, there's Archbishop Dimitri um, from Texas, I think, I forget, it's Fort Worth or somewhere, but he has uh, incorruptible, uh, he has an incorruptible body, um, which actually is in like mainstream news sources because like it's an actual incorruptible body. It's not like covered with wax and stuff. Uh, new martyr, Daniel Sezoyev. So we're going to have canonized saints in addition to the ones we already have that deny the Immaculate Conception by name. And so... I find it strange if people say, well, this is like a Protestant thing in, in orthodoxy when like, no, well, these are, this is actually the teaching of our saints on the issue, let alone Decree 6 of the Council of Jerusalem 1672, by the way. So we have a pan-Orthodox council that also weighs in on the issue. Well, but in you, the same you, article, I'm sorry. As you, yeah, as, as you say, as you laid out earlier, I mean, the sources, the St. Maximus and St. John the Hemocene, exclude the possibility that that uh, that we could embrace the macro conception so this is this is really a, not even a, I don't see why this yeah is. it's it's if the, if they were to dig up unambiguously because all these things have to be read in context and people are reading snippets from ecumenists so they're not even like people they're people trying to sell you something they want kumbaya all of us together which is a good motivation but again, that's where they're coming from. Someone giving you a snippet out of context, you can't read the whole context, not translated in English, you know, from the 17th century, if it exists, let's say, I would say we must follow St. Photios and cover the nakedness of our fathers, right? We 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 don't air out if they're if they're outside the consensus, the fathers said something. We don't talk about that stuff. We don't air that out as it gives us license to uh, assert false doctrine. That is not how we deal with the saints, according to St. Fultius. 
Now, with the same uh, in the same blog article, and that's in, on Mystagogy in Book Five. Uh, in the same article, if uh, someone bothers to read the comments, I have a comment there actually, and I quote three different 21st century scholars who aren't Protestants, as far as I can tell, rejecting that the saints taught the Immaculate Conception. So this this is not some sort of apologetics thing. It's not some sort of oh look at this quaint saint that's a monk that doesn't know better, right? Like. Uh, Elder George, like you pointed out, he was a professor and everything. But like, you know, these guys are made of, like they're quaint. They're just in this little corner somewhere in Athos. And they don't know what's going on in the world around them. You know, in fact, they would know more because they, they have God's grace from the ascetic disciplines. But the point is, even people without the grace of ascetic disciplines all recognize the same thing. You know, some sort of uh, kind of blog post. This doesn't quite it doesn't demonstrate what they need now. There's the accusation, like I was alluding to before, that the Immaculate Conception is a Protestant import. And I think that this, I think one could be forgiven because he, uh, Orthodox source was quoted, right? I was very, I'm not surprised because I've seen this years ago. But the point is, I could see someone be surprised that this slur comes from John Pantaleon, I can't pronounce Greek last names, Manosakis. Manosakis. Manosakis, you know. Right, so it comes from, uh, he's another ecumenist, and again, we don't want to use these things as slurs. They identify as ecumenists. We're just calling them what they call themselves. They could be very nice people. In fact, I think most ecumenists are nice people. It's the, the road to hell is paved with good direction, uh, uh, with good intentions, right? They, they want everyone together, uh, but the quote, Vladika Luke, yeah, the way we bring unity to churches is to rebaptize everyone and bring them to the Orthodox Church, right? So yeah, we want everyone. We want to be one, as Christ says. May they be. Uh, may be one, right? So we want that, and so they have good intentions. I'm sure he's a great guy, but the point is, he makes a bad argument because by saying that it's a Protestant import, his evidence he cites his father, Christian Kops, not an Orthodox scholar, not an Orthodox saint, a Roman Catholic scholar. All right. So how is this a Protestant import where your evidence against it being a, uh, against it being Orthodox is by quoting a Roman Catholic? I it, it's really not a good argument. All right. And so people where Father Christian Kopp's research has profound mythological errors uh, that they're very surprising. Like uh, my favorite, for example, is he speculates that. Um, if I remember right, that St. Gregory Palamas was reading a translation of, of uh, Thomas Aquinas because of uh, discussions of angels and purification, and not St. Dionysius the Areopagite, who Thomas Aquinas was quoting. So think about that. Think about that argument, that a Greek saint took it from a Roman Catholic author who then took it from a Greek saint. Would it be quicker just to say that the Greek saint was simply reading the Greek saint and he wasn't reading it in Latin translation into Greek? Right? It just doesn't make sense. The Occam's razor would say, well, no, we would go by just all sorts of saints read St. Denisius directly. Right? It's really, it's just a very bizarre argument. It's all sorts of methodological errors. Uh, another, given, what, given that they weren't really that distant in terms of their time uh but besides that what we know that saint gregory says about uh the the latin scholastic theology and its embrace of the filioque it's also very questionable why he would be taking 
that as a source instead of the, the saints of the church. So it sounds very strange. And you know what? I think, and that'd be true, but and this would also be too, I think it's actually uh, St. Nicholas Cabasillus. I think I got the wrong saint there. My apologies. Well, he's just a bit further on. But, and he knew St. Gregory Palmas. So, yeah. so the point is like, St. Nicholas, let's, let's get real. St. Nicholas Cabasillus was obviously reading St. Dionysius in the Greek. He didn't need to read Thomas Aquinas to, to get this idea about the purification of angels from St. Dionysius. It's just, it doesn't make sense. And so there's these sort of uh, eisegetical reaches that are just really not justifiable in Cap's research, which um, the latest peer-reviewed research, namely my own, demonstrates that he applies anachronistic anthropology to Byzantine sources, and he's just not a good source. So this renders um, uh, Manosaki's whole objection just moot. You know, he's getting it from the wrong source. He's not getting order. It's just... You know, so you could be forgiven for saying, well, here's an Orthodox person saying it's from Protestantism, but the guy he's getting it from is wrong, is my point. Besides the fact that Manosakis is basically embracing a lot of other things that aren't really consensus in Orthodoxy, like the papal, uh, papal ecclesiology, and to what I, the little that I've read, it seems like that's what he's, he's on. So it's, from an Orthodox perspective, it's not exactly the best source to try to show that Orthodox are embracing the Macro Conception. You're not going to and, give it and, and just in general, if his source is a Roman Catholic and not an Orthodox source, then on what basis? Yeah. You, yeah. you know, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. And so there was an accusation made that the elders, quote, um, reveals that the Orthodox believe that human nature is inherently sinful. Uh, now, based upon everything we just discussed, uh, that's why we gave the whole gamut since the apostles on this issue. That doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. But we're going to find that this accusation kind of boomerangs back regrettably, and not on us. Now, Roman Catholics, due to the reasons we just stated with uh, the debate whether the Theotokos died or didn't, they must choose between a Marian prelapsarianist view, that the Theotokos being immaculately conceived allegedly, because again, we're talking about what Roman Catholics must choose between, thereby had, choose like Eve before the fall. And then there is a school I would just call Marian postlapsarianist, that she had the fallen flesh of Adam which we'll get into is kind of bizarre. So what are the problems posed by both these camps? Now, the, the Marian prelapsarianist in Roman Catholicism must affirm, because right there, Mary is from before the fall in every respect in her flesh, must affirm that hunger, grief, and pain, and, and so that means all aspects of sin, precede the fall. Now, that's obviously anathema for us Orthodox. It's not part of human nature. So ironically, this idea that human nature is inherently sinful is actually an allowable opinion within Roman Catholicism. In fact, within that Catholic Encyclopedia article, because it said that um, she was immaculately conceived but had sorrow. So being that sorrow is from the fall, you're pretty much saying human nature is inherently sinful. That's how it sounds to us. So boomerangs back there. But here's something more profound. Which, because this is the view which I see, not the majority of Roman Catholics have. I think the majority actually are prelapsarianists, but who's doing, who's counting? The point is, at least in apologetics, this is the majority view, the post-lapsarianist view. Now, if you're a married post-lapsarianist, you must affirm a Gnostic dualist anthropology. Now, this is really, really concerning, and it's not my opinion. Now, Bishop Olathorne, Right, who wrote an 1855 book one year after the dogmatization of the Immaculate Conception called The Mother of God. You can read this, pages 58 to 16, pages 90-91. He essentially delineates that the human body can inherit sin, but not the soul. 
meaning hmm. Mary inherited sinful flesh, flesh that they could decay, flesh that could have pain, but her soul was sinless. Why? Because the body can inherit sin, but not the soul. Now, this is this idea that a sinful inheritance of Adam could be the body, but the soul is completely sinless. Is Gnostic. You could really, you could literally read it in the Gospel of Mary, eight ten to verses eight ten to twelve. It implies the same exact dichotomy. Hmm. That in, in that when Mary's going to the toll houses, and the idea is that her soul is blameless, but they're accusing her for desire because it was in her body. Right. It, it's again Gnostics all over the place. But the point is Gnostics teach. This is more like Gnosticism one hundred one. Gnosticism teaches. That the body is bad and the spirit is good and we ought to be liberated from the bodies. Which is why Christianity teaches that we'll have glorified human flesh. We'll have eternity in bodies like Christ. Right? Gnosticism has this dualism that the body's bad, which ironically this post-Lapsarianist anthropology endorses. That the flesh is sinful and, this, and the soul is not. Um, this is very, very, very disconcerting. And it also makes absolutely no sense because in Orthodox anthropology, sin causes corruption and death. This is cause and effect, right? A soul has a fallen tropos, so the body corrupts accordingly, cause and effect. Now, again, we just preserve what the fathers teach and they preserve what the apostles taught, that deposit of faith, the faith delivered once and for all. Now, Romans 5.12 says, sin entered the world and death through sin. Seems pretty clear. Now, what is the theological basis for this? God upholds life by his divine energies, which we must cooperate with, right? St. Maximus talks about this, right? So we live by cooperating the grace of God. That's what our eternity is. That's what heaven is. It's co-willing and co-energizing, cooperating with God forever. He wills, he operates, we will, we operate. Now, when we fail to cooperate, it's like unplugging from the source of power. This cuts us off from his energies, which leads to corruption and death of soul and body. The soul dies first and the body dies accordingly. All right. And the saints talk about this. And you find, and you find this in Orthodox uh, catechisms. Um, Father, the name skipping my mind. He, he was a teacher in Jordanville. He lived for like a really well, long time. Michael Bolozanski. Yes. So it's in his catechism. This is mainstream stuff. Well, and it's interesting that in the whole discussion that Lofton put forward, there was no mention of this of this death of the of the soul, the second death, or the the, or the first death. I mean, he just talked about the death of the body. So there was, uh, I think that goes along with what you're saying here that there's no, there doesn't seem to be an understanding of that. That's why I really wanted to start this discussion at the beginning, Father, because it's for all the listeners they they could realize wow, this is the Orthodox doctrine is a it's a pearl of great price, and it yes. can't be it can't be shortchanged. It can't be compromised, yes. and that's why the Immaculate Conception just it can't work. Is we have to assume all these things for everything to work. Yes. Now, I also want to point out another scripture that the uh, this Roman Catholic dualist anthropology contradicts, and it's Wisdom one thirteen and sixteen. I'm going to just telescope it. The part in the middle doesn't contradict. This makes it unnecessarily long. It states, "God did not make death." But the ungodly, by their words and deeds, summoned death. Mm. Right? So why is this important? The scripture assumes our fallenness causes death. From sin came to the world and then death, right? God did not make death, but the ungodly call it upon themselves. The Roman Catholic 
anthropology assumes that God arbitrarily causes all uh, causes death. So you could be sinless, right? You could be a child that never committed sin, a three-year-old infant. Um, you could be the Theotokos, but you could, because you have Adam's physical flesh, you'll just die arbitrarily. Even if your sin was, uh, as they claim, sinless in every respect with no even no original sin, right? And so death becomes arbitrary. It's not even connected to the condition of the soul. The hagiographies now make no sense that there's saints that undo death, right? Everything just doesn't make sense anymore. Hmm. And this is where, just so this is why, you know, you talk of papal Protestantism. This is where the faulty Protestant atonement theories like federal headship derive from. Like, because the Protestants don't have the Orthodox tradition, they can't even really explain why we die, why we deal with original sin. It just doesn't make any sense to them. So they just come with these arbitrary theories. Well, Adam was our representative, so God's just going to make you die because he represented you and you had no choice in the matter. doesn't matter what Ezekiel chapter 18 says. Now, obviously, the Orthodox doctrine actually explains how it all works, which is why we know it's well, true. And beyond that, isn't it blasphemy to say God is the author of death? Like, Absolutely. Life, He's the author, life of life. the author of life. Life is the author of death. How does that work exactly? It, we're the author of death. That, that's that's the whole point of Wisdom of Solomon chapter one. That's what it's talking about. <laughs> we we made our own death. We're to blame. When we co-energize the devil, we die. And we are born of the tropos, which makes us inclined to co-energize the devil. But we don't have to. We don't have to. Because the Theotokos did it. Hmm. Right? Theotokos didn't at all. Her whole life. And she conquered death. Hmm. And there's other saints. There's... Uh, uh, St. Demetrius, St. Nicholas, there's other, there's other St. Saints George, as well, by the way. St. George, voluntarily, right? Um, basically say, okay, after many, many martyrdoms, I think he said, okay, I guess I'll... I'll I forget, I who's the saint that's blind in Russia in the 20th century? I don't have her... Matrona. Yes, yeah. So, so the point is, like, we have a lot of saints like this. Just like we have incorruptible bodies that are actually incorrupt. So... To me, this fundamentally makes, this whole issue we discussed, the prelapsarian, that means unfallen, human nature, substance, usia, whatever word you want to use, um, which is incapable of death, a fundamentally different nature, substance, usia, than the post-lapsarian humanity, which dies as a default despite of sinlessness. Right? So let me repeat that. Yeah. The no, fact that they... The, the, yeah. the fact they insert this dichotomy that the, the flesh could be sinful... Um, but not the soul, and you could die because even though you're sinless, your flesh is sinful, makes that whole that human essence, because remember, human essence is body and soul, right? It's it's interesting. Human essence is actually made of two different essences, right? <laughs> you know, body and souls are two, two different essences. So the human essence that is prelapsarian is incapable of death, but somehow the post-lapsarian essence could die as a default, they're actually, you've turned, you've changed their properties. They're now two different essences. Hmm. So the, again, the boomerang comes again, whether you're pre-lapsarianist or whether you're post-lapsarianist, they've now made human nature fundamentally different and sinful. And of course, that's heretical, which is why the Orthodox reject either, either of these. Now, my last comments, Father, uh, which I'll just be very brief, is just there are sort of like these unrelated comments about uh, the Papacy, which I didn't see how they really had to do with the quote um, from Father George, that uh, the quote, the Bishop of Rome is a source of unity, end quote, 
And this is allegedly taught in multiple ecumenical councils. I just want people to be aware, having read every single one of them translating to English, um, that no such quote exists, not in the minutes, not in the canons, not in the decrees. There, there's no such quote. It just doesn't exist. And so you could say, well, I interpret this to be consistent with this, and we could we could have that discussion, but it just that quote, or even to me, even conceptually, it just doesn't exist in the councils. There is also the claim made that the formula Hermistas in its various versions to quote it all affirm the papal claims. But just some people aware, this is proven by uh, CA or Collectio Avalana. My Greek pronunciation is bad as my Latin pronunciation. Um, that's Latin there. Um, letter 139. And so we know that's not the case. There's sources on this. I just want people to be aware of that. Um, so, like, Father, I think that's everything I was thinking of on this mm -hmm. topic that I think people really had to know. And because if there was a actual appreciation for the Orthodox doctrine, we would not be accused for being impious or for changing things. Because I think what we're going to see from St. John Maximovich and what St. Uh, Paiso says, all these things are consistent for centuries because it all comes from the apostles. Mm -hmm. So that, that's, that's my thoughts on the matter. All right. Fantastic. Well, that's I, I really appreciate that. I think everybody listening is going to appreciate that because this is what needs to happen if we're going to get serious online about Orthodox theology and catechism, we've got to always put everything in context. We've got to go back to the fathers. And there's, you know, there's this, there's this uh, accusation against our work, work uh, your work, my work, I think other people's works that, you know, we're just picking and choosing of different fathers because that, and it suits our presuppositions. I think that's exactly what happens that does not happen in Orthodox theology cannot happen if you're looking at the Patricia consensus. And of course that would be the, that would be the the challenge, right? Well, okay, if you're saying we're picking and choosing what 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 we already are according to our pre, uh, pre, pre uh, presuppositions and our dispositions and our biases, well, show us show us the, the patristic patrician then. Show us the consensus, uh, and which almost never happens. But um, it, you know, hopefully, this is going to be an answer that will will help a lot of people who are in the middle. I think that. There's a lot of people right now uh, among the various Eastern Catholic slash Uniate uh, uh, or Trad uh, Roman Catholics who are who are going back and forth online between different podcasts and they're trying to figure out you know what is the where is the truth on this where's the patristic consensus and the patristic uh, inheritance and I think you've done a tremendous service tonight to present that uh, and you know he uh, uh, the uh, Michael was asking for a response, and we have given him one. I want to just go through it really quick. I've taken some excerpts from an article by St. John of Shanghai, and I think it's just going to—it's maybe going to take what you presented and restate it succinctly, and and go ahead and jump in anywhere you want, uh, and we'll talk about it. So I'm going to go better better the saint than me. Yes, of course. And this is another <laughs> another. We just want to put one more uh, nail in the coffin of this idea that we're not following the saints, or we're not we're not serious about being disciples of the saints. That's or that's what this is all about. We have nothing of ourselves. We're just basically. I always say, you know, to my people listening to me, I say, I'm a, I'm, you know, I'm happy to be uh, Barlam's ass. Basically, that's how I feel. You know, I don't know anything. I don't. I, I just try to repeat what the fathers say, and of course, I could get it wrong, but that's at least. Uh, you know, they can take it and they can go look for themselves to the fathers. But the first is this right here. This is the first uh, of, of about 10 uh, snippets from St. John's article. We can just 
comment on it. First, he says, he begins with scriptures. And he says, as, as you've done, what we have in scripture is that there is one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ, who is the only sinless one. And you can see the scriptural passages there. Probably pretty, pretty straightforward. But he says, we don't actually have that about anyone else, about everyone else, including the mother of God. What we have is that who is pure of defilement, it says in Job. No one who has lived a single day of this life on earth can say that they don't have, they do not have some uh, share in the fallen condition. I'm gonna and I'll just interject that you know some of these words translation like defilement um, sounds impious. Uh, the same word, for example, is used by Saint Cyril of Jerusalem in the English translation. That is, of course, in one of his catechetical lectures. And so this is something that our saints, even mutual saints, um, do use and. We're not saying defilement again in the sense that the Theotokos was conceiving of sin or committing sins yes. or any or any such impious thing. The defilement is simply the fallen tropos. And again, God's eyes are, are too pure than to look upon sin. Um, I'm trying to remember Habakkuk in chapter one says that. And so that's why, let's say, the Ark of the Covenant, when they picked it up, they had to hold the they had to hold it with poles and it was covered and it could never be touched by someone. That's why Uzo was struck dead because the Ark Covenant had to be undefiled. It couldn't be touched by sinful man. Right. And so this is so the sense no of more, defilement the we're moralistic, about. The whole moralistic, we're, we're bathed in a moralism in the West, in English, and I mean, among many contemporaries. So they're immediately thinking moralistically about the term, but actually it's not at all in that context. I, I think it's a good point. That you're yes. Mm -hmm. He goes on, he says, God... Uh, quoting Romans uh, 5, 8 to 10, God commended his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If we, if we, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of the Son, etc. So just showing again scripturally what the witness is concerning uh, the common humanity. Now he says, the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception contradicts psychic tradition as well, not just the scriptures. The fathers referred to her exalted sanctity from her birth, as well as her cleansing by the Holy Spirit at her conception of Christ, but not at a conception of Christ, not at her own conception by uh, her mother, St. Anne. That's the uh, patristic, you know, consensus. And, and just so people are aware, because I think people are kind of trying to, what St. What uh, John is talking about particularly is, what we were talking about at the full dose of theosis at the Annunciation. Um, we believe that there was a grace preceding her conception. St. Joey Kaminana did pretty much the impossible yeah, and had to dis and dispassionately conceive the Theotokos. So, of course, there is grace preceding her conception and, and grace throughout her life. Yes. But, but this, but that is not what St. John is talking about there. He's focusing on the Annunciation. Yes. And, and the not, particular kind of grace there. Well, yeah, and the and the, and the, the implications are not with, in terms of ancestral sin and the condition of the common condition of man. So she was not placed in the state of being unable to sin. This is very important, but continued to take care of her salvation, overcome all temptations. He's quoting a few patristic sources how they refer to her. So they do not they do not imagine that she's unable to sin, which is the implication. Is it not of the immaculate conception that that was not possible? Yeah. And, and I want to address that, and I might, I'm going to try to get to a quote from St. Nicholas Cabasillus who I'm saying this. Is, Here's what we don't mean. That, of course, well, Eve didn't have original sin. This is a common yarn. Well, Eve didn't have original sin, but she sinned, so she was able to sin. 
And that's not where what we're St. John is talking about here. What, what he's talking about is, again, that to be in the state where you'd have to be deceived, like it wouldn't be part of your condition where sinning is something that's within your capacity because of a fallen tropos. Again, that's why we began this talking about the whole issue of tropos. You really need to um, understand it. Now, like to, to quote um, St. Nicholas Cabasillus in his Nativity Narrative, he says oh, let that... Me just, let me just say St. Nicholas Cabasillus is the, how he said it anyway. Sorry about that. <laughs> but, and he is a towering figure in late Roman slash Byzantine Orthodox theology, which really summarizes much in both the, way, the life in Christ and then divine liturgy. So he's a real, he's a really great authority uh, who, like Saint John of Damascus, is really summarizing and following the fathers before him. And and, and Father, always interrupt and correct, correct my pronunciation, please. No worries. Yeah. And so the saint uh, says that um, she came from the earth, from the fallen human race that had given her her own nature. Again, that word nature that he's talking about. So again, he flat says she comes from the fallen human age race but yet despite all this to quote him overcame all evils from the beginning to the end thereby uncovering the true human nature as it was originally created and as a result escaped the common disease being just human and without receiving anything more than other men all right so that's quoting saint nicholas so as we could see she was not placed like saint john says in the state of being unable to sin but continue to take care of her salvation, right? So like in the word words of St. Nicholas, um, that she over she escaped the common disease, right? She overcame all evils. So all St. John is saying is what's, what earlier saints had said. Mm-hmm. And that's usually how you know the saints. They always speak like the other saints speak. Yes. Continuing, the matter conception is meaningless because if the pure Christ could be born only of the Virgin, uh, if the virgin might be born pure, it would be necessary that her parents also should be pure of original sin and their parents right up to Adam inclusive. But then there would not have been any need for the very incarnation of Christ since Christ came down to earth in order to annihilate sin. So that's not what, something we did not touch on. You want to comment on that? Yeah, I would just say it's because St. John is, um, he's replying to a transducinianist understanding of original sin, of inherited guilt. That's kind of waned in popularity in recent years in Roman Catholicism. I actually, from what I could tell, their catechism even teaches against it. So I would I would go as far as say it's not their official doctrine. But that being said, that is what he's responding to, and he's making an identical argument that Thomas Aquinas made. So, so it's just people aware, it's not that St. John's being an ignoramus. He's addressing no multiple objections. And so he's given the well, answer to it. It's not saying it's not St. John's fault that they've changed. <laughs> and they're changing, or or or, the, or you're gonna or you're playing rope a dope, and you're getting different ones from all different angles, you know. Right, so, right, right. Okay. The mad conception makes God unmerciful and unjust because if God could preserve Mary from sin and purify her before her birth, why doesn't He not purify other men before their birth rather than leave them in sin? Any thoughts it's, on uh, that? I'm sorry, Father. Go ahead. I was going to say, any thoughts on that? From your from your research, I, I I would just say it's just more of a general point that why would why would he do this one exceptional thing for one person and not anyone else, including these other sinless saints like Saint Demetrius and other people we knew that didn't sin, right? So it's just it it just wouldn't be 
uh, fair. And I think the connection, which they haven't seen yet, which I'm sure you'll quote, is because there is victory in overcoming sin. Right. right? It's like almost a grace. It's a kind of grace that God permitted the Theotokos and St. Demetrius and these other saints, uh, Jeremiah the prophet and other saints, to uh, to go through these things. And so that's in the very legalistic way the West sees it. It's just it's all about advantage. And like, oh, you know, it's just, you know, not fair. And he's saying, well, and I think being somewhat condescending those sensibilities, it just wouldn't be unfair according to um, that mindset. So it also points back to the question of, is she the great exception or the great, uh, great example? Is she the first of many or is she just one that, that, that never can be repeated? Mm-hmm. And the Orthodox, so that, I think that also points to this. Why, why would this be the case? And the Lord, uh, you know, is coming to save all of humanity. And then he does special for her. What does that really follow? Is that really consistent with what we understand the Lord doing? So it follows likewise that God saves men apart from their will predetermining certain ones before their birth, birth to salvation. So it does. do you think that the whole idea of predestination played a role at all in their, were they affected by the that, that kind of legalistic distortion of Paul? and my, my, my personal opinion actually is that the Immaculate Conception is a hodgepodge of varying, of varying wrong doctrines and, and misnomers. And so... Once something becomes kind of a tradition and you don't know where it came from because it's aberrant and, and not to be crass, I don't mean this to be mean, but all false doctrines come from the devil. Because like I said before, there's not a single bad idea that ever occurred to your mind that was your own idea. It always starts with the devil. So if, keywords if, because the idea is not to be uncharitable. If the Immaculate Conception is a false doctrine, then it, it comes from the devil. <laughs> and so men in their nature are good. They're going to try to, if they were deceived by this false doctor and they're going to try to come up with different reasons and rationales. And so I do think predestination was part of it. I do think the belief in ancestral sin was part of it. And I think there's a certain point where it just became ad hoc. It's just like, it's just what so many people believed in the West. They had to just come up with some way for it to work, such as uh, the, the scholastic differentiations between body and soul and one could have sin, one can't. I mean, of course, no, it's ridiculous. No one's thinking of that normally. That that's something you come up at hot because you have to because you've already accepted something aberrant. So now you have to try to make what's aberrant sound like it's not aberrant anymore. Mm-hmm. So that's so why, my view. Why didn't they? Why didn't they? It uh, wasn't Cl- Bernard of Clairvaux and 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 Aquinas weren't they against the the doctrine of the um, I know Aquinas was definitely. I, I don't know so as much about Bernard of Clairvaux. I think you're right though. Uh, but I would I would just say from what I could tell, I can't say I've really studied them particularly, but from what I could tell, their objections are consistent within the worldview, the aberrant scholastic worldview that Thomas Aquinas had, for example. And so it shows that there's inconsistencies within their own tradition and that these internal inconsistencies, but generally speaking, they don't have much import to us because they're already so far divorced from the orthodox yeah. anthropological. Well, I'm curious why they didn't assumption. listen to him in the West. Why did they reject somebody like Aquinas after 700, 600 years, whatever it was? They turned away and said, no, we're not going to listen to him on this topic. It's kind of interesting. When I was in the Vatican, there's I think it was on the ceiling, but there's a, a beautiful mural, such gorgeous art there, where it was about the... Uh, the definition of the Immaculate Conception, its dogmatization, and like essentially 
they're handing something to the Theotokos, and she has this pose like, oh my, you shouldn't have, you know? And then you see like Thomas Aquinas in the corner, kind of begrudgingly doing this because he was wrong. It's so, <laughs> it's a pretty funny painting. It's kind of the connection between what we're talking about. People should right, see what, Going on, this teaching completely denies all her virtues. If she, even yes. in the womb, even in the womb, when not even able to do to desire anything good or evil, was preserved by God's grace from every impurity, and then by that grace was preserved from sin even after her birth, then what does her merit in what does her merit consist? If she without effort or without having impulse to sin remained pure, then why is she crowned more than everyone else? Yeah. The Immaculate Conception denies her victory over temptations. From a victor who is from a victor who is worthy to be crowned with glory, this makes her a blind instrument of providence. I think that's one of the most strongest points that St. John makes. What what else to be added to be added to that? It's it's just it's a blasphemy against the Theotokos. Right? Like right, her whole voluntary death hinges upon her attainment of spiritual perfection. Which was all was all hundred percent God's grace and hundred percent her cooperation with that grace. Why take that away from her? So the whole doctrine of synergy can't doesn't exist here. No, I don't see how it can. Which is at the heart of patristic soteriology. I mean, this is this this is why this this is topic. I mean, there's some Orthodox who say, "Yeah, it's not a big." It's huge. It goes yeah. to so many. It, it 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 highlights so many divergences from patristic soteriology, theosis, synergy, all these things that are key to the spiritual life. Yeah, and and again in. I'll just say it just puts so many saints into disrepute, right? Which the Catholic Encyclopedia article on the Immaculate Conception even says that there were some that were even in error, right? Like we have to say saints are wrong because there are so many saints that, and it's the consensus of saints that are utterly inconsistent with this false Roman Catholic doctrine. Shall we read the last two paragraphs of St. John and then open up to questions or is this, is this sufficient from St. John? Because we have I, two more paragraphs. I mean, that's up to you, Father. I'm game. Uh, I do think it can only go downhill from there, though, because those those are such important words. Okay. Well, I'll just encourage everybody to go and, and read that then. I'm not going to share it, although he goes on and, and says much more. But you're going to want to just look look up. Let's see. Let me get the title. of, the, of It's posted as an Orthodox Christian understanding of the Immaculate Conception, St. John of Shanghai and San Francisco. You can find it at Pravoslavia, Orthodox Christian, and I think some other places. So, if you're still wanting to go further and see a contemporary saint, an Orthodox saint, what they're saying about this uh, uh, doctrine, then I think you you can uh, you can do that with Saint John and have a pretty definitive answer, or at least a good general answer. <laughs> Oh, my God.